thought we could um, have uh, the last uh, half hour of this part of the day as a uh, time for some more dialogue and questions. Um, but uh, to begin with, someone earlier today was asking what, uh, say, my experience or how I've been uh, working with this uh, perspective change in, in my life. And uh, as I w- was alluding to earlier this morning, I, this this uh, move to England is not something that I planned or uh, was was intending. I was quite happy with the idea of growing old with Ajahn Pasna, Ajahn Krunadamo, watching uh, watching our hair get thinner and our teeth, <laughs> hearing our teeth falling out, and you know, just creaking sl- more and more slowly up the mountain. You know. <laughs> um, so, uh, and uh, I first came to the U.S. 20 years ago, May of 1990. And uh, that year, uh, I was just tagging along with Ajahn Sumedho and also uh, two of the nuns, Ajahn Sundra, who many of you know, and uh, Sister Jyotika. Uh, and the, uh, we came to a, a conference here called Joys of Monastic Life that Jack had organized, with, also with some wonderful Christian monastics, uh, Brother David Steindl-Rast, and um, a wonderful Trappistine nun uh, from, uh, from Iowa, um, and uh, you know, people from Zen Center and, and uh, other groups. Pema Chodron was here, the Tibetan tradition. Um, and so that was 20 years ago. Maybe some of you were around that, <laughs> that time. We were all a little older and uh, at least more wrinkled and flabby. But, <laughs> but uh, 20 years has, has gone by since then. And uh, at that time, the idea of a monastery over here was just a... Just that. It was an idea. It was a group of literally half a dozen people in the Bay Area who were students of Ajahn Sumedho who uh, wanted to help support a, a, a branch monastery to, starting up. So in that time, then, uh, things have come together. We were gifted a uh, wonderful piece of land by uh, Venerable Master Xuan Hua, the, the late abbot of City of 10,000 Buddhas. Just before he died, he gave us 120 acres of, of land which is half the property where we are in, in Redwood Valley. And uh, then when we moved on to the property, the monastery community, uh, the monastic community began. Uh, Ajahn Kunalama was, uh, as I said, a one-day-old novice. We're, the, we're two-thirds of the original crew. <laughs> and then uh, a little later on, Mark Sponsella joined us, and uh, he's uh, <laughs> that embarrassed guy in the middle there. He's... Uh, he also has worked here at Spirit Rock for some time. He's also now the president of our uh, board of directors. And the community's grown. It's now, we're actually, I think, at close to 20, close to 20 monastics there now, about uh, 13 or 14 monks, about five novices. Um, and Debbie Stamp, one of the original board of directors uh, who invited us here uh, more than 20 years ago, she's, she's a still at the helm and uh, a resident member of, of our community. And so uh, it's been very wonderful and delightful to be a part of that, that growth and to see the Bay Area community drawing close and being uh, interested to be involved and has participated and, and, uh, and given so much, also joined in and giving their, their uh, uh, you know, lives and good intentions and, and sturdy effort uh, to to this project so far, so it's been wonderful to be part of that and to see it developing in 
in what seems to be a very you know, wholesome and, and well-integrated way. So it's been lovely to see that the project is, is uh, done well so far. So in, in a, reflecting on it, it's a bit... I haven't had any children, at least that I know of, in this lifetime. <laughs> Unfortunately, I'm not kidding, but... Uh, if, if, they are, if there are any, they're, they're, they'll be at least uh, in their 30s by now. Um, so uh, it's rather like having a, a, your, your child growing up and going away to college, that you just, that there's this, um, you're happy for, the, for that mature, maturation to have happened, that they're, they're living their own life and they're now a, a full-scale adult, legally, but there's still that, oh house is rather quiet. <laughs> uh, oh, oh dear. They've grown up and I'm so happy that they're doing their thing. You know? <laughs> so there's a, there, I genuinely have that mixed feeling of um, I'm very happy to see that Abhayagiri uh, has developed so well and uh, uh, happy to have been a part of it. And so there's a sadness in, in leaving that, like the, the, the kids heading off to college and doing their own thing and, and that separation from that. But also, uh, as I said, I was very honored to, to be invited to take up this, this role at Amravati. It's a, it's a big place. There's a resident community of 50 or 60 people, about 40 monastics and 10 or 15 lay people. has its own independent retreat center. In a way, it's a bit like Spirit Rock, but with a resident community of 40 nuns and monks. So it has its own retreat center. It's a big teaching venue. Um, it's a, a big public facility. So it's a big honor to be invited to be part of that and to be head of that. Um, it's also going to be a lot of work. <laughs> but I'm extremely happy to be able to, to help my teacher and my beloved mentor and, so in a way, best buddy in the monastic life, Ajahn Sumedho, to be able to step out of that role and be a, a bit of a free agent for what uh, years he has left. So that's a great delight to be able to let Dad retire, <laughs> you know, and, and have a bit of <laughs> free space. And so that I'm genuinely happy and delighted to, to be able to offer that. So it's certainly a bittersweet uh, feeling, uh, the prospect of leaving here. And I'm uh, really delighted in and had been changed by my, uh, my time here. I'm certainly... I'm not quite as English as I was when I first arrived. <laughs> my accent has changed. So my T's become D's. Like I say, gotta, lada, instead of a got to or lot of. <laughs> I, now say, I, I can now say Montana and Nevada without sounding weird. <laughs> Nevada, ne- Nevada, Montana, Montana. No, that's wrong. <laughs> Sounds better. <laughs> So, uh, and, uh, so I'm, I'm very happy to have been changed uh, and uh, learned a huge amount from, from being here and this whole adventure of bringing a sort of classical, the, the, uh, sort of the strict end of an orthodox tradition that's two and a half thousand years old to the Bay Area. <laughs> kind of an interesting project. We needed a strict But you need that, yes, yes. <laughs> So, uh, so that's how it's been for me. So uh, I, I really have uh, appreciated this, and 
And uh, Jack Cornfield, the Teachers' Council, the Spirit Rock staff and the community, the volunteers and everyone who's been involved in running this place and also the, obviously all of, of you guys who've uh, been coming here for a long time, all those of you who just come for the first time today. You know, it's been a, a wonderful synergy and um, a beautiful welcome and an unfailing friend, friendliness and supportiveness to our, our strange little project up in Mendocino. Uh, and so that I've really, uh, I've really been glad to be to be part of this. But there, there's also a, a, a certain poignancy. I get the, the I've been getting a lot of oh, this is the last of feelings. So like coming down um, Red Rock Road from Petaluma, I, I had another one of those this morning. Oh, this might be the last time I see all this this uh, back Sonoma backcountry and. Uh, the West Marin, uh, Black Mountain, and with a little cloud cap today, and Nicasio, and so on. So, oh. But that's it's a feeling. <laughs> it's a poignant feeling, but it's it's also just uh, it's got its own beauty. And one of the things I've been re- reflecting on was, uh, you know, when we think of things being perfect, we don't realize that part of their perfection is their impermanence. And I, you know, I discourse about this all the time. You know, it's a sort of regular riff. <laughs> so, oh yes, we have to see that. You know, this is already a broken cup. You know? Like Ajahn Chah would say, this is. If you can see this cup is already broken, then when it goes, it, you know, you won't suffer. This is already a broken cup. I don't know how many times I've said that, and then not realizing that <laughs> my connection with the Vyagiri was a broken connection. You know, that it was it was imp- it was impermanent, and so there was this feeling of oh. Oh right, <laughs> I'm part of this this thing that breaks too. This this is not a permanent connection either. So there was a, a an ironic little piece I'll just finish with. Was um, last year somebody sent me some photographs that were taken on a, a visit I made to Thailand in 1988. I just finished my tenth year as a monk, and I was given the chance to travel in Thailand for, for three months. And during that time, the, the supreme patriarch had just passed away, and I was part of a a small group that took a, a wreath of flowers and some offerings to his funeral. And Ajahn Pasano's sister uh, was visiting Thailand at the, at the time. She just came in at the same period, and he came down to Bangkok to meet her. So we all ended up at the, um, the Patriarch's Monastery at this, this funeral ceremony at the same time. And somebody took some pictures, and there was this photograph of Ajahn Pasano and I sitting side by side in 1988. So we'd obviously met before. He was at the monastery in the northeast when I first showed up there, fresh off the beach, in 1978. So we knew each other, but there we were sitting side by side in 1988. I had no idea. I had no interest in the United States. I'd never been here. had no clue I was going to be coming here. And it was the next year that Ajahn Sumedho invited me to come and be part of this. Ajahn Pasna was well embedded into being abbot of of Wat Pananachat in northeast Thailand and had no, no intention of moving on. And there we were, side by side. And so this photograph showed up. And so we put it in our album and said, sort of, little, did they, little, little did they suspect when this picture was taken that these two were going to be collaborating for years and years and building a monastery in California. Neither of us had any connection with the U.S. And particularly Ajahn Pasno, who's Canadian, <laughs> you know, would only cross the border under great duress. <laughs> So lo and behold, both of us end up here and collaborating for 15 years. So then, 
what was ironic was that little did we suspect when we put the photo in the album that that connection was going to come to an end. <laughs> so uh, that was, uh, that was uh, a, uh, one of those ironies. And I, I took a look in the album again. I thought, oh, right. <laughs> when we put the album together, that wasn't on our minds. Yeah. But it's, so in that way, it's a very good... Uh, a very good reminder. Oh, yeah, these, all these teachings about impermanence, it's everywhere. <laughs> it's, it's not just some places. It's everywhere and always. And so that, that, that was a wonderful reminder in that respect. And uh, also for both of us, Ajahn Pasno and I, we, we've been collaborating, uh, running Abhayagiri as a joint abbotship for about 14 years now. And... Uh, I'd say it's not an exaggeration to say there's scarcely been a crossword between us. Scarcely. Scarcely. <laughs> Couple. I can think of two, maybe three occasions. Yeah. Which I think for a California marriage, that's pretty... <laughs> you know, two or three, three or four crosswords in 14 years. That's, I'd say we should set up a family therapy practice. <laughs> Couples counseling. But... Um, so it's worked very, very well. So for both of us, when, we, when we, I got this invite, there was this feeling of, oh, there was a sense of, of sadness at that particular friendship having to you know, come to the end of its, its cycle because it's really been a, a, a very delightful collaboration. We're extremely different personalities. Those of you who've studied with Ajahn Pasno, I'm more of the sort of all-mouth-and-makeup type. <laughs> And he's the uh, the sort of incredibly quiet, <laughs> restrained, clear-minded, you know, absolutely uh, solid um, uh, resolve in his his practice and uh, focus. But we, we have very different personalities, but we have very very uh, uh, harmonious views. Our view of of dhamma, our view of practice, and training is is very close. So it's it's worked it's worked well as a, a sort of complementary <laughs> qualities. So anyway, that's my, my little piece on my uh, uh, departure. So if there's any other questions or things people like to bring up, please, um, this is your time. Yes, Jennifer. Microphone. in endeavoring to um, develop a constant state of mindfulness, do you ever schedule times for your mind to wander and do whatever it wants? <laughs> like as sort of the antithesis of scheduling meditation? I've taught that before. So. But have you done it? Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, <clears throat> but it's, the trouble is when you try to let your mind wander... <laughs> it's like having this, uh, the, the, the camera on you saying, okay, now look totally natural. <laughs> relax. You know, there's only four million people watching. Now relax. So it's, it's hard, but uh, I, I've often taught that, just to let the mind uh, wander and, and drift. So it can be useful because, again, with the theme of the day, we can be so controlling and thinking that, that practice equals control. And if we're not in control, if things are not in control, or not fitting my expected pattern, 
then it's wrong, or I'm not practicing. And so we can create these very, very narrow perspectives on what the practice is. But sometimes that um, lack of control, just mindfulness of things being out of control, is really important. That's one of the reasons why we have all-night sittings once a week. We have an all-night meditation, like on the full moon, new moon, half moons. So when it gets to that sort of between two and three in the morning period, things can kind of get (laughs) blurry in there. And you have these sort of strange strings of thought wandering through and particular odd mental images passing by. And what that does is it really prepares you for when you're, you're ill, you're feverish, the mind's out of control, you are exhausted, the, the mind's deranged when you have Alzheimer's or, or dementia, that if you've learned how to, to be mindful of a mind out of control, then you don't suffer when it does that because you're not thinking that you are your thoughts. That if we really just develop that quality of awareness, you can be com- perfectly aware of an utterly deranged mind without it being disturbing. I've had that before. <laughs> really, really, it's it's quite uh, it's quite marvelous how you can be hallucinating. I, I was on this Tibetan medicine sometime years and years ago. And it had this extraordinarily powerful effect. And I lived in this little log cabin with a stream running by it. You know, in the winter time, you get that stream running by the the log cabin cootie. And yeah, the the stream would just produce all this music. So one day it would be Wagner. <laughs> Next day it was Led Zeppelin. <laughs> yeah, then it was Bach. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> then it was Beethoven. And, yeah, and it, it was just this really clearly audible music, and it was just lurching away all night long, and just my mind wide awake. I just these bizarre hallucinations, auditory hallucinations, all this music, and uh, I could have thought I'm going crazy, but rather I thought, oh. This is interesting medicine. <laughs> My mind is just hallucinating and creating all these weird, weird perceptions. They arise, they pass away, they're not self. So it's, it's actually extremely helpful to be able to just listen, again on the, today's theme, to crazy thoughts and deranged feelings. It's like there's a, a very beautiful little book called Mr. God, This is Anna. Some of you might know that. There's a dialogue in that between little Anna and this old guy called Woody, who was a, a, a street person. And he said, uh, this little thing that he said, which is, the day is the time for the... Ha-. She says, she was like this, five, this sort of visionary five-year-old, and she said, what are you all doing up in the middle of the night? You know, why, why, aren't you <laughs> why aren't you sleeping? And Woody said, the day is the time for the head and the senses. The night is the time for the heart and the wits. In the day, you can only see as far as the sun. At nighttime, you can see all the way to the stars. So that uh, if we let go of the world of the head and the senses, and don't make that our refuge, and we make the heart and the wits our, our refuge, then when the head goes berserk, we're fine. Because awareness is not affected by that deranged thinking and erratic moods. Yes, the woman with the red shirt by the pillar. Is there a is this this one? Yeah, is there a difference between 
uh, aversion and non-becoming? Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. the, the question was, is there a difference between a, aversion and non-becoming? So I would say um, non-becoming is when you're, you, you're not, the heart is not inclining either towards the desire to become or the desire to get rid of. Is that what you're asking? So non-becoming is where we is that middle way. But if you meant by non-becoming the desire to get rid of, yeah, okay. So I would say that the non, that, that desire to get rid of it's a it's a subtle kind of aversion. It's a I don't want to be with this. I've had enough of this. I'm out of here. You know, forget this. It's that sort of. So that. Uh, that can be less obvious than what we would think of as aversion. It's not, not necessarily spelled out, but it's, it's a, a subtle form of it because it's, this, it's a pushing away, a, a rejecting. Like, I don't want to feel this, therefore I'm going to check out. Yes, there's a hand at the back there. I just wanted to ask you about um, feeling fierce versus feeling angry, because um, it, it seems to me if that if you're feeling fierce and therefore you're feeling sort of a benevolent, like you said, you know, rescuing a child. But it, it seems to me sometimes you may be feeling fierce, but who's ever receiving your fierceness may. <laughs> may think that you're just angry and uh-huh. out of line. Uh-huh. And um, it, it may be subject to, to interpretation in, in terms of who is receiving either your anger or your fierceness mm-hmm. and how to deal with that. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, in, the, in the long run, uh, it really it depends on a few things. Firstly, really being unbiased in, a, in knowing your own intention. Because it, it can be like, I'm just doing this for their own good. I'm not really angry. <laughs> and so you're labeling it just being fierce or, or being cruel to be kind. But it's just, that's just getting you a free pass. And there's the, what's, what, what you're really wanting to embody is you need to be punished or I want to set you straight. So it's just going under the cloak of that, but it's it's the the intention is really more um, uh, destructive. Um, my experience is that if you are genuinely coming from a place of kindness, if you are um, even if you are forthright and you're you're fierce in that way, that uh, even if the the person is uh, is threatened or on one level, they, they they take it badly. Something in them knows that you're you're coming from a place of caring. So that it might be that um, if you criticize someone or that you you make some um, comment that they find painful, their immediate reaction is like, "Well, who are you to say that? What do you mean? That's not right. Who do you think you are?" And then they just defend themselves because what they've heard is is not what they want to hear. Um, and I've certainly had that experience of feeling that, that way <laughs> with, uh, towards other people. 
and then after you've cooled down a bit or you're, you know, you're away from the situation, and sometimes even right in the middle of it, but often it's a little bit after, you have this, darn it, they're right. <laughs> yeah. But your immediate feeling is to defend yourself, to push it away because it's not what you like. But if it, it really is coming from a place of, of kindness, of a genuine caring, then there's a, there's a part of you that knows, that recognizes that even if it doesn't want to, even if it shuts it out for weeks or months, there's, a, uh, there's something that says, you know, he was right. Like, um, to give you an example, uh, back in the early 80s, back in the early 80s, at our, when we only had one monastery in England, um, one of the, the novices, uh, or someone who had been a novice in, in uh, white robes, had uh, showed up at the morning meeting sitting uh, back amongst the lay people wearing lay clothes. And uh, Ajahn Samodhi said, Andy, <laughs> how come you're not wearing your, your whites? And he said, oh, oh, I disrobed last night. And uh, so Ajahn Samedo really let him have it. But he did not approve of... Because there's a certain procedure that you go through and it's a polite way of asking your teacher if you can do that rather than just sort of carrying it out by yourself. Anyway, so Ajahn Sumedho really let him have it. You know, I was in the room at the time, and it was one of those, <laughs> you know, <laughs> there's this sort of force that, that crossed the room. And, uh, and uh, I've been quite friendly with this, this Anagarika, Andy. And, and uh, so after that delivery, and when Ajahn Sumedho let him know what he felt about it, and it gave him some feedback, <laughs> which was certainly fierce with a capital F. Um, he, uh, Andy said that he felt like a, a chicken with his head cut off. You know, he really felt you know, blasted. And, you know, and he felt sort of hurt and defensive, and, and then he disappeared and sort of left within a couple of days. And, but Ajahn Sumedho, he said, when he was giving him that delivery... He was trying to find. He was trying to control himself from breaking into laughter, because he wasn't even really taking it seriously himself. But he, something in him knew. I got to really let this guy know this is out of order. So anyway, Andy left this feeling of Ajahn Sumedho is just an angry old git, and what does he know? He shouldn't treat me like that, and this is unfair. Twelve years later, a letter arrives to um, Ajahn Sajito at, uh, at Chithurst Monastery. And he said, and it was just addressed to the abbot. Yeah. Dear abbot, um, I used to be an Anagarika at Chithurst Monastery 12 years ago, back in the early 80s. And I want to know if you can tell me where, where Ajahn Sumedho lived, because I want to express my gratitude to him. I left in a pretty bad way, and I nursed some pretty negative feelings towards him. And, and I was been going around justifying to myself how bad and wrong and stupid he was. And, you know, it just after all this time it's begun to dawn on me that actually he was right. <laughs> and that was really a stupid way to act and that I wanted to express my uh, regret of uh, uh, the way I acted and, and to my, uh, express my gratitude for all the wonderful teachings he gave while I was in the monastery. So it can take a while. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I thought that was really wonderful. That he, because he, he was a, a very committed practitioner and had stayed close to the Dharma community and so on, and over here in the states. But that he'd stayed with that and had had 
and slowly that had just percolated to the surface and thought, and there was this, this sense of pride, like, darn, he was right. I hate that. <laughs> and then he, but he had the, the wisdom and the humility to say, okay. And he could climb over that and then make that gesture. But the, the main thing, I feel, is being clear about your own intention and not just listening to the, the convincing voices of the committee that just wants to justify it. But hey, what's really going on here? Okay, well, I see four o'clock has come around, so I'm not sure if um, how we're going to shift from one mode to the other, but uh, I thought we'd, um, we could uh, do the sharing of blessings to end this part of the day. Um, so this is a particular kind of dedication that we make, usually um, offering up whatever kind of good qualities, whatever benefit has come from the day that we've experienced, whatever good karma has been created, to offer that up, not just for our, uh, being for our own benefit, but for the, the benefit of, of everybody else, all beings in every, uh, uh, every dimension or every role and uh, mode of activity around the world. So you can take this as an opportunity to take this day and what's happened and what, what you've learned, what's been helpful, and to offer that up and dedicate that to 